The Athletic. Are Manchester United really back? That was certainly the feeling back in February after winning the League Cup and beating Barcelona. But now, league form is faltering and their Champions League place is under threat from arch-rivals Liverpool. And do they have enough in the tank to stop City winning a possible treble? All this, plus the uncertainty over the ownership, rumbles on. I'm Ian Irving and this is the Athletic Football Podcast. We have everything in our hands. We don't have to look to others. We have to look to ourselves and find a way to get back to our levels. Okay, we're joined by the Athletics' Adam Crafton and also one of our Manchester United writers as well, Laurie Whitwell, for this. Difficult to know where to start with the situation at United at the moment, but Adam, I'm going to start with your recent tweet, if that's all right. Um, I'm going to read it out in case people haven't seen it. There's a real pendulum feel to Manchester United right now. Top four, two trophies and a Glazer exit equals nine out of ten season. Fifth, letting Liverpool in, one trophy, enabling Manchester City treble and Glazer's stay equals a 5 out of 10 season, brackets at best. Um, that is literally what the club is facing up to in these final weeks of the season, isn't it? It is. Uh, 5 out of 10 is really generous, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say that, but um, I wanted to be polite at the start yeah. of the pod, but yeah, 2 out of 10. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be, given where they were sort of having beaten Barcelona and won a Carabao Cup against Newcastle, that that would be a real come down. Yeah, they're, they're on this kind of precipice, both on the pitch, in the boardroom, and it all feels a little bit avoidable. You know, the team kind of has, I wouldn't say, I'd say like self-destruct is too, is maybe too strong a word, but they've certainly been on that journey over the last few weeks in terms of wasting chances and giving cheap goals away. And also, you know, this process, this strategic review that the Glazers started in 2022 it didn't need to be going into the final month of the Premier League season are we still calling it a strategic review at this point because I'd forgotten it was even called that it was such a long time ago that this review started supposedly the club are still calling it a strategic review the club never promised that this was going to be a sale or a full sale now or anything like that you know it was it was always that the club were exploring uh, options and strategic options because there are two bids on the table to buy the club to get control of the club I think that's what people have kind of taken for themselves and and that's the decision that the family are making at the moment but I say it's an avoidable situation because it was always going to be the case that Manchester United would go into the final month of the season with some form of uncertainty about what they may achieve because you know you're a big club and you might get to a final or you might be competing for things. You know, back in January, I think you guys on your Manchester United podcast started talking about winning Premier League titles at one point. Who did? No. I don't remember that. Don't remember that. It was always clear that there was going to be something that Manchester United would have on the line. And they are now in this situation where, you know, you have this situation with what they might win or not win on the pitch, what they might achieve budget-wise next season in terms of the Champions League, whether the club may be sold. And somewhere in the middle of all of that, 
They've also got to communicate a decision on Mason Greenwood. This is potentially a very, very busy month for Laurie Whitwell. It certainly is. It feels like every month's a busy month for Laurie, doesn't it? He thinks he's about to go on holiday for the summer. Um, and he's, he's got another thing coming. Laurie, okay, we'll hold our hands up. I think there may have been a fleeting mention of the T word on Talk of the Devils. Um, <laughs> got carried away a little bit. Yeah, but actually when we started the season, um, speaking on the podcast... I think if we'd said that United were going to win a trophy, that they'd been in the final for another one, that they'd be in contention for the top four, that would actually be way beyond what the initial thoughts were when Eric Ten Hag was taking over. Um, it's the way this season's drifted in the last few weeks, isn't it? Like, like Adam's explaining. I mean, how different do you think United as a club actually is? It's different in the sense that you've got Eric Ten Hag there as someone who has absolute conviction in his um his his philosophy and the way he wants to go about managing the team and also the club and i think you have to support that i think he's shown okay he's definitely made mistakes on selections but i think generally the the work that he's put in has been very positive and i think everyone can get behind that and you know the football side has been given the uh, sort of has been empowered by Richard Arnold, the chief executive, to make these kind of recruitment decisions. I think we can still question whether they are uh, absolutely um, the best ones because you know United have overspent in the transfer market still, which leads into this summer because th- this is kind of another piece of uncertainty that Adam is uh, reflecting in that what can they actually do this summer to make it better because it hasn't been like they've unearthed you know a gem for a, a reasonable amount of money um, previously to this so what what confidence do people have that they can actually do that uh, next season so I think that's still the same really that those questions are uh, are prevalent um, yeah I think Ten Hag's the one big difference and I think Whilst this recent run, you can definitely question selections or or tactics, substitutions. I think generally he has been the one that's guided United to this position where when he was appointed, I think you'd hope still United could make top four, but it it would be a hope. I think it has taken Liverpool falling off the pace and Chelsea having a total chaotic season for United to to edge ahead. And even Spurs having, you know, that kind of mad one that they've had for United to kind of be comfortable in this top four position up until this point. And as Adam says, it's, it feels like it could go either way now after these last two defeats. I mean, I still think United have just about enough, but it's, it's going to get very tight. Rory, obviously you, you're there nearly every week watching Man United. What is Ten Hag's philosophy? I think ideally he'd like to dominate the ball, wouldn't he? Um, but he's having to make adaptation because of the personnel that he's got. So Lisandro Martinez was absolutely his signing. I mean, United will say that he was on the short list of five left-sided centre-backs, you know, and, and they've scouted him. But I don't think without Ten Hag being manager, he would have been at the club. So that's very much his player. And you can see from the way that he is you know, excellent on the ball, can wriggle out of tight situations. That's the kind of centre-back that he wants, someone that can help dominate the ball. Obviously, he's been injured You know, the last few weeks. I think Luke Shaw, to be fair to him, has done a really good job in that role. There's certain bits of, of his play that I, I'm seeing repeatedly. So he'll have like, you know, the centre-backs come out of position into the flanks. So Rafael Varane, in fact, that's where he did his injury, you know, out, out on the sort of right wing, um, collecting the ball from, uh, I'm not sure who the right-back was, but Diogo Dallo maybe. And, you know, Luke Shaw was doing the same thing at West Ham, coming out to the left-hand side. And that kind of suits his game anyway, you know, as, as a fullback. So he's got these kind of rotating positions and certainly in attack as well. You know, you've got Anthony coming inside, you've got Rashford coming inside. He wants players overloading those kind of areas so they can then play the ball around the 18-yard box and make chances. And to be fair, against West Ham, they did do that for the first 20 minutes. It's just that when they had the shots, they went off target. I'm endorsing that 
way of playing and, and it's clearly the first version first iteration of what he would like to see because of the players that he's got which is why he wanted Frankie de Jong you know all summer you know Casemiro is a very good player but very different player to Frankie de Jong and that's one of those aspects where you go okay well that's where the you know recruitment side need to you know be ahead of the curve. Casemiro was basically a player that was has done fabulous work for United this season. Maybe tailed off a little bit towards the end now, but he um, he was you know offered by agents and United went for it as, as the season looked like it might unravel to begin with. You know with that uh, defeat at home to Brighton and then just before the the Brentford defeat. So I think we're still trying to see what kind of version of football Tenag will want. And and David De Gea is a, 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 a key. Sort of question mark in all that. I mean, Tanag's been insistent that he wants him to stay, but clearly he isn't his ideal version of a goalkeeper. So that's something that's going to be kind of having to ironed out. And but I mean, that's that's a decision that because he wants a, a striker that can actually score goals. You know, so that has to be the priority this summer. So the goalkeeper has to kind of wait a little bit, and that goes back to recruitment, ownership structure, the debt on the club, all these questions that you raised earlier. Adam, in terms of the end of this season, how important do you think it is to end it in the right way for Eric Ten Hag? I mean, he's had uh, you know, a, a moderately successful year in terms of winning a trophy and, and being in top four contention. But if they were to end the campaign out of the top four, losing the cup final to Manchester City, could that have a knock-on effect moving forward about the job that Ten Hag is trying to do at Old Trafford, do you think? Yeah, I think it'd be a, like a total calamity. Given how much optimism there's been during the season, given that even, actually, I think even in the last few weeks where they've not been playing as well, I've never had the sense that the players don't trust the manager or anything like that. They're just tired, aren't they? I think they're tired to a certain extent. I think they're not playing very well to a certain extent. I think maybe te- certain teams have worked out how to play against Manchester United as well and Ten Ten Hag doesn't really change that I think his idea is just we do that better but they're not doing it better because Ten Hag isn't the most expressive individual which is great right when you're winning matches no one cares no one cares what the manager says and how sort of vivid he is in explaining things but I think if you have sort of the end to the season that Manchester United may potentially have Obviously, fans will hope that's not the case. But if you have an end to the season, which is basically you win the little Carabao Cup relative to Manchester United's big ambitions, then you go and lose 7-0 against Liverpool, you crash out of the Europa League, and then you go on this really bad away run of form. Where And you have to remember, the sort of the people who were spending money on those away trips, I think they're entitled to expect a little bit better than what they've had over the last three, four months or so. The last 12 months, well, Adam. Yeah, I mean, you go back to the end of last season, I think they ended with seven, six or seven consecutive away defeats as well. So it's not yeah. solely a 10 hag problem. But I think if you get into that stage where you've you've not only sort of gone off the rails in terms of form, but you've let Liverpool back into the Champions League and then you don't cut up a fight against Manchester City in the FA Cup final and you're still not really expressing things particularly sort of vividly or persuasively which I don't think Ten Hag really does, then I, then I do think he'll have a bit of an issue in this. I'm not saying you know his job's on the line or anything like that, but I think it means he goes into next season under far more pressure than he would do, obviously, if Man United get the top four and compete really well in the FA Cup final, whatever the outcome is to that. So I th- it's a really important four weeks for the way I think that he is perceived both by fans and, and also more externally. 
there's echoes there, isn't there, in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's season when they reached the Europa League final in Gdansk and that could have actually been the platform for him to kind of express himself with his own players and, and, and they're thinking, okay, this guy, we, we've won a trophy with him um, and also have uh, you know the confidence in the transfer market as well. It took something away from his, his managerial authority, I think, and I... I sense the same thing here I think the fact that he's already got the Carabao Cup and they've they've you know they, they ground it out in a final against Newcastle at Wembley I think that's at least a, a tick you know where they go okay in, in these crunch moments we can win they've done that you know against Man City against Barcelona at, at Old Trafford it has to be said against Liverpool you know at the start of the season against Arsenal they have managed to come through these pressurised situations so but if they do fall away here that would then undermine that and yeah I agree with you Adam that I think that would you know just erode something about Ten Hag's uh, authority but I, but I would also still caveat that with the fact that it, you know he's had injuries and, and they are this, this was the first time that he has said is acknowledged the fatigue factor because you know it's the first midweek that they've had free since the September which is kind of mad really and not only for you know just fitness levels but also just for an ability to have sessions with your players on the training pitch and kind of get those principles into them so um, I think there would be a, a bit of a, a, a not an excuse but a reason for United having this kind of issue there was a lot of periods early in the season where he just didn't rotate a lot of key players. Yeah. He continued to play and play and play. And and people, you know, there were people who had sort of watched him at Ajax who were saying to us, this has happened before in terms of, you know, he doesn't really rotate his players. He continues to play them. And we're kind of like, yeah, but who cares? They're winning, right? And I, I think there is a, an element to that which has just kind of come home to roost a little bit because a lot of them just look at that kind of core 14, 15. And you could basically come back and say, well, he basically just doesn't trust some of the other players. I think there is a bit of that. And I think there's also a bit of the fact that when he was starting, you know, in the early months of this season, he's starting from zero almost, isn't he? In terms of setting the tone with the club, with the fans, you know, trying to move on from what was an absolute disastrous start as well. I don't feel like maybe he had the confidence, I don't know what you think, Adam, in, in some of the squad players to be able to help United move past those first two matches. Because we're talking about probably what group stage games of the Europa League where United actually lost the first yeah. game against Real Sociedad when he did rotate. So yeah, it's almost a perfect storm in that sense for him. If you were making like a ticks and crosses column on his, on his first season, you know, you'd obviously put ticks. Yeah. He, he seems to have restored like a, a sense of unity and spirit morale, both into the fan base and also into uh, the team. The football has been very good at times. There's other times where it's not really sort of worked out whatsoever. They have some sort of identity when they're playing well. In terms of the downsides, I would go back right to when he first took the job and when he sort of had the view when he first started and thought, I can get Cristiano Ronaldo on board. If you go all the way back to that, his view of the start was, I can get Cristiano Ronaldo to buy into being part of this squad. He'll work hard for me. And sort of within six weeks he'd kind of concluded that's not going to work and then all of a sudden you're into the middle of August you've lost a couple of games you're spending your money elsewhere and he's decided to spend a huge part of his budget on a very very young winger who although I think he's got huge potential Anthony was not going to provide what was really needed from a hundred million pound expenditure last summer that is where I think Ten Hag has not really had that much scrutiny in terms of that decision last summer 
if you've got £100 million to spend on a forward player or several forward players, is that actually the best way to spend it, given you've worked with this player for quite a long time as well? Now, it could be next season he kicks on, but is he going to kick on to be Mo Salah, Sadio Mane kind of levels? Personally, I don't see that that much at the moment. And when you think that they already had issues with Ronaldo, Martial, Rashford was obviously massively out of form at that time as well. I think those are the questions that are maybe fair about Ten Hag. And I know people listening will think, oh, you're going all the way back to last summer. But I think there's a real knock-on effect to that now, given they can't score a goal. Yeah, I mean, the goal scoring has been um, the key issue, really, hasn't it? Um, did a piece this week where they've actually created more big chances than Arsenal. 72 for the season, 69 for Arsenal. And Arsenal have scored, I want to say, 34 more goals than Manchester United, um, which is <laughs> staggering, really. They're down on their XG as well by like seven, you know, from, from what um, the statistics would say they're expected to score from the positions they get into. So that would suggest that, okay, the... The systems, the kind of the, the the tactical approach that Tenaga is employing is is getting okay levels, but then the players themselves aren't actually taking those chances. You can definitely scrutinise his choices in the transfer market, and if a manager wants a certain player, then the club kind of has to go with it. I think, and it's up to them to say about the, the price. And and clearly, they went to a higher price because of those first two games that they lost, and they thought we cannot have this manager who we've put a lot of faith in sort of just spiral into you know we need to give him a chance in this first season from the get-go and I think I know Ian will probably uh, raise his eyebrow at me again but I think Anthony has showed some levels of improvement in the last few weeks and he's scrunching his face now okay but he's not as you say not a hundred million euro player um, and that's that's an issue Um, but I, I think I think Tenag needs support there. He he can't pick all the players that he's ever going to buy for Manchester United. Surely, you know, you look at you mentioned Mo Salah. I think I'm right in saying that that you know he wasn't a Jurgen Klopp signing. It was actually the um the the, the data guys behind the scenes, and, and it, there was a bit of to and fro about that. And they said no, we want we we think Salah's the one to go for. And look at that. I mean, he he is in excess of a hundred million pound player, and they got him for like thirty odd. So it's that kind of decision making that a manager can't do it all on his own. And so that's that's what you know. Whilst we will have scrutiny on Ten Hag if if this season does unravel, then also there needs to be scrutiny elsewhere as well. I think that's fair. The goal scoring is amazing. I mean, they've scored yeah. as many as Leicester, one less than Fulham. Do they have better forward players than Man United? Well, they've had Mitrovic suspended for you know. <laughs> half the season same same as Casemiro um, you know out, out the team and, and they've managed to you know they scored five against Fulham didn't they with Carlos Vinicius and Tom Kearney getting in on the act and um, so yeah I, I agree you'd, you'd think what, what's going on there then um, that you've got I mean 49 goals for, for a team of Manchester United's calibre and but you, you need more from you know, I think Rashford's the only player that's you know sort of overperforming his expected goals. You've got Sancho there, who's scored five, six. Bruno's the one that's kind of dipped in terms of actual goal scoring. Even though I do actually think, you know, I think he's created the most chance in the Premier League this season. Okay, that's because he takes a lot of set pieces, which is an instant kind of chance creation. But I do think he's actually been pretty good this season overall Fernandez so that's that, but that, that number's a difficult one when, when you compare it to the likes of Arsenal where they've got you know Odegaard on 15 Martinelli on 15 Saka on 13 you know it's that they aren't showing the goals around at United Is there anything he can the manager can actually change for the Man United have got their first free week this week since I think the World Cup is it or since December since September and they've had two days off at the start of this week to try and reset 
Is there anything that the manager could do different selection-wise, shape-wise, to sort of get a kick out of the players the last few weeks? Or is it just a case of go out, do the same thing and hope someone puts the ball in the net? Play your best team. So you had Valvegos as number 10 at West Ham. Play Bruno as the number 10. Probably Rashford up top and then Sancho and Anthony. Or maybe if you want Marshall up top and, and Rashford. On the, just play your best team though. Casemiro, Eriksen. At Old Trafford, they're a different beast this season. And I feel like they will create chances and I think they'll take them. Uh, Because it was, as I say, that start against Brighton, they should have scored at least one. Against West Ham, they probably should have scored at least one. So they they changed the dynamic of the game and then we're sort of talking about something else. And and it's both individual mistakes as well. It's it's Luke Shaw putting his hand up for a a penalty at Brighton. It's it's David De Gea letting a back pass in, you know, from Ben Rama. Um, You know, so it cut those out and scored the other end and and it could become a 1-0 win easily. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, as people may have seen on The Athletic, Laurie, you've written a piece about Richard Arnold, the man essentially in charge of Manchester United, uh, certainly in Manchester, um, aside from the owners, of course. And there's lots of question marks off the pitch like we've been talking about on it. It's an interesting read, no doubt, even for non-Manchester United fans to understand a bit more about the inner workings of the club and some of the things that Arnold's actually trying to change and has changed over the course of him being uh, in charge of the of the club. I mean... For you, what what was the most interesting aspect of writing that? Possibly his uh, embracing of you know Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill, um, the, the difference that he has from Ed Woodward, his predecessor. So Arnold and Woodward, you know, both went to Bristol University at the same time. Now they didn't know each other there, although Arnold was friends with Matt Judge, who was the former. Uh, chief negotiator at Manchester United, and then they all kind of did get to know each other at Price Waterhouse Coopers in in the early 1990s. And then Arnold was brought on board by Woodward after the takeover to handle United's commercial growth. And, and him and Woodward were in a small office in London, ringing round different sponsors across the globe, and they'd often travel and they'd have like battered suitcases in the offices and things like that. So they they were at that stage close, but I think that's changed in in more recent years where Arnold has been. He became managing director and then obviously he's now chief executive. But in, in that period where he was managing director, he was based out of Old Trafford. That's where his office was. Whereas Woodward was based in London, you know, at the Mayfair offices that um, United have alongside George and um, other high profile executives at United. And that's basically where they would make the decisions. You know, you'd have agents come in, you'd have players sign there, you'd have contract renewals there. Whereas Arnold has shifted the focus to Manchester and to Carrington. So you've got John Murray, who's the football director operating out of Carrington, you know, deputy technical director Andy O'Boyle operating out of Carrington, you know, head of recruitment Steve Brown operating out of Carrington. So you've got that, that's the hub. And I think that's the right thing to have because then you've got a more natural sense of what the squad's feeling like, what the manager's feeling like, those little conversations in corridors and you're on top of it. Whereas if you're sort of detached in London, I don't know, it's not an organic situation where you figure out how the club is being really. So Arnold has, has moved things on as well. So, I mean, clearly Woodward and Ferguson, I don't think had the best relationship I think it was frosty to say the least. Um, Arnold has embraced Ferguson though as someone who he feels like he can tap into, not necessarily you know agree with everything he says, but at least have that dialogue there. And I thought it was really interesting that they have this kind of I don't know what you'd call it a brainstorming group, a kind of think tank of of 
sort of Ferguson, Gill, Murta, Brian Robson, Dennis Irwin, Manu Vidic has, has even been involved at times. And they actually discussed transfers last season, uh, last summer. So not like that they were, you know, telling United where to go with it, but, you know, United were, I think, wanting to communicate with kind of influential figures, what they were thinking, sort of sound them out, you know, ha- have a kind of dialogue. And I mean, clearly you don't want people that are detached from the, the current, landscape of football to be dictating what signings Ten Hag makes but I think it's good to have that kind of approach where you can just you know uh, sort of see what they think and and you can also communicate your own ideas Um, so yeah there's a few different aspects but I think the fact that he's given authority to the football side of things and also embraced United's history is a two main strands Is it better? I think so yeah the other thing about Richard Arnold is that he's pretty decisive and he'll make a decision even if there isn't necessarily in a timely manner you know so it's not like he's waiting around for people to get back to him sometimes so for example it's a small thing but I think he has regular dialogue with fans he's, he's been on the fans forum he speaks regularly there he was sort of part to do with the creation of the fan advisory board which is the only way that United fans have been able to directly have communication with Joel Glazer and make sort of demands or at least press him on certain things like dividends which has now been dropped and I think there's a, a financial imperative to that because United started losing a lot of money and they couldn't afford to give dividends but nonetheless I think the fans sort of pushing that issue has, has been interesting so he has you know, these regular dialogue with fans but the main thing is is that he's handed over responsibility to the football staff so you remember Ed Woodward was on the phone to George Mendes in Gary Lineker's garden you know f- clinching that deal you won't get Richard Arnold doing that kind of stuff he's across it so he's involved in recruitment meetings in the sense of being there but not asking um, not sort of pushing the issue he wants to just understand why certain decisions are made but at the same time he's not the one making those decisions Another aspect of the piece um, which I thought was interesting was the the idea that his position isn't certain as well considering you know it is better like you've explained um, because of the ownership bids that are going on at the moment and rumbling on Adam as I'm sure you're happy to report on day after day week after week month after month where are we up to with all of that so we had the latest round of bidding we were told that would be the final round of bidding you obviously got the bid from Qatar fronted by Sheikh Jassim and then you've also got the Ineos bid to Sergeant Ratcliffe and then you have these other bids that we we kind of know a little bit less about because there's been a little bit less PR around them uh, but these kind of offers to take uh, minority stakes or offer financing that would allow the Glazers to stay at the club while investing in the stadium. All the parties really are a little bit frustrated by how long this process has taken. It's not just kind of the fans who are frustrated by this. There's people who are working in the world of finance who don't really understand why, you know, they essentially laid out an auction. You would think that if you're going to sell the club, they'll the highest bidder would take that. That's obviously not happened yet. That makes you think, are there sort of some kind of ongoing disputes within the family about what to actually do that still need to be resolved? Because we know that Joel and Abby Glazer, probably the most hands-on in terms of the Glazer siblings, would quite like to cling on as being the view for quite a long time. And the rest of the siblings kind of want to get out of there as fast as possible. So I think that, I think that's an issue at the moment. In terms of going forward, yeah, I mean, if I was Richard Arnold, I probably would be quite worried because, you know, he's someone who's been hugely associated with the Glazers for a very long time. So if they were to be leaving the club, then it's, you know, a bit like we saw at Chelsea last summer. You saw Marina Granovskaya, Petr Cech, all the kind of old old broom leave and people come in to replace them. So that's that's quite logical. The sad thing, I suppose, from the Arnold point of view is, and look, I mean, to some fans who will be listening to this, 
Richard Arnold will always be seen as a Glazer puppet, right? Someone who yes. worked for the Glazers for a very long time that's enabled a lot of what's happened at Manchester United during the period in which, you know, the performance of the football club has been pretty appalling over the past decade. However, I would say if that change had been made from Woodward to Glazer, uh, sorry, from Woodward to Arnold five years earlier, I think Man United probably would have won a Premier League by now. As strong as that, Adam. Big claim. And, and it's less because actually of how good Arnold is. It's how bad Woodward was at his job, in my opinion, in terms of from the football perspective of the job. He was so bad. Like, the decisions were so poor consistently for such a period of time. And although you would say Joel Glazer has ultimate responsibility, the Glazer family has ultimate responsibility, so much power was put into Ed Woodward's hand during that time. And so many poor decisions were made again and again and again and again that, yeah, I, I, I really do think that, that that was the, that Woodward is the key reason why Manchester United underperformed. And, you know, I think a lot of people that worked with him at the time that may have defended him at the time now basically kind of say similar things that, you know, you look at what's happened since that it all just seems a lot more sensible and a lot better structured as we're about to fall out of the top four and lose an FA Cup final. <laughs> <laughs> Ignore the yeah. start of the podcast, it's fine. Um, Laurie, how much is on hold at the moment for United? How much do you think it's affecting the day-to-day workings of people like Richard Arnold and like Eric Ten Hag that we were speaking about at the start of the pod in terms of when this gets sorted out and this huge issue hanging over them? Because... I don't suppose Eric Ten Hag is completely secure in his role, depending whoever actually invests in the club in the end. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, when a new owner comes in, all bets are off. I've seen it countless times when I covered Midlands clubs in the Daily, when I was working for the Daily Mail. Um, yeah, you, you basically the manager would be the first person out the door. I think it's a bit different with Ten Hag in that um, he's got this kind of. Uh, fidelity with the fans and I think that the, that, that would be a, a real if a new owner came in and, and got rid of Ten Hag I think that would be a, a real bone of contention for fans I think there'd be serious concerns um, going forwards but yeah in terms of executives so he's in a strong position for Ten Hag is quite important right because yeah how much that new ownership would need to stay loyal to him if you finish top four and you've won two trophies and the fans actually absolutely adore you because you've kept Liverpool out of the top four and then you've gone and ruined Man City's treble compared to the alternative you know and if there's a new ownership and then the first three months to next season isn't great right, you could very easily see a kind of another Thomas Tuchel situation developing in the way we saw at Chelsea last year so I think for Ten Hag it's quite, it, it seems ridiculous to even have that conversation but because of how uncertain new ownerships can be I don't think anyone could take it for granted equally Man United should be worried because Ten Hag has been impressive this season He's not going to put up with sort of just continued nonsense going on behind the scenes, right? Like yeah. he will be in demand at some point from some very some very big clubs if he continues to do a good job. And he's not going to put up with sort of basically getting to sort of year two of a project and being completely uncertain about what his budgets are and who he's going to going to sign. He's resisted so far putting any sort of emphasis on what's going on behind the scenes. We won't do that forever. There was one comment, Laurie, wasn't there, in the press conference where he admitted he wasn't sure what his budget looked like for the summer. And that was the first public sign that I've seen 
that this process was affecting him. Yeah, I don't know if he was trying to keep his cards close to his chest or if he just genuinely... I mean, I suppose it is how long's a piece of string. If there's a takeover, can the situation change? Now, obviously, financial fair play considerations um, limits some degree what can happen. But if if the Qataris did come in and, and wipe the debt, then there would be more flexibility in what they can spend. And I think that's possibly affecting some of the approaches that they might be making to players. I, I also don't, I don't feel like that should be used as a excuse, you know, to kind of delay because it was, you know, last last season we were told that, um, you know, the fact that they hadn't got a new manager in place in Eric Ten Hag sort of delayed what they could do in the transfer market. And it's like, well, actually, you did hire him in April. And, you know, so I don't really consider that as a, as a genuine reason for why business was left late in the window. But yeah, I do think it does leave a question mark over some things. I mean, Luke Shaw signed a new contract, though. Marcus Rashford's having contract talks. David De Gea you know, seems to be close to a new contract. So these kind of things are still happening. So there's not a pause on, on that kind of business as usual is, is what we're told. But I think clearly the bigger topics of can they go and sign a hundred million pound striker can they you know get a midfielder that's of a, a of a good playing age to kind of replace Ericsson and Casemiro you know as they get into their 30s I think they're kind of the, the bigger issues that maybe are a little bit uncertain because of the takeover situation um, just touching on one thing that Adam said in terms of, sort of Thomas Tuchel I think with Todd Bowley he he wanted to be very involved with Chelsea and clearly you know he made himself like de facto sporting director didn't he and I think he wanted to have influence over some of the team selections and Tuchel wasn't playing ball with any of it was he um, or at least there was you know dialogue and, and Tuchel kind of was resistant to it Tenar clearly would also be resistant to that kind of thing but will would would a new owner be the same at United you know would would Sir Jim Ratcliffe want that kind of level of of, of not control but you know kind of you know, influence or communication I, I don't know it, you, you want an owner that's invested because we've hammered the Glazers for being detached for so long and it is it is an aberration that they can um, you know be across the pond so frequently and, and you know and not be involved so you want an owner that seems to care but at the same time you want them to also let the, the football people make the football decisions so but that, that will be an interesting dynamic as, as we go on It's an interesting thing in terms of because obviously I think one of the things that the Ineos bid has been criticised for by some fans is this idea that the Glazers may retain some sort of stake in the club. The flip side to that is it may mean that there is some continuity in terms of the personnel this summer, rather than sort of people just coming in and wiping that slate clean. And then all of a sudden you're building a recruitment department during the summer transfer window. That might be the one benefit to that, that it might just mean there is, and some people will say, well, we don't want that continuity because the recruitment's been shambolic for a decade. That might just be a one kind of advantage to it because that was what happened with Chelsea last summer it was yes Todd Bowley ended up in this situation where he ended up having to make himself into a sporting director but it was kind of because Chelsea were getting rid of everyone and the moment they took over the club was right in the heart of a summer transfer window those aspects will be just sort of operationally interesting that people maybe aren't thinking about as much yeah we could do this all day couldn't we to be fair but we're gonna have to leave it there on the Athletic Football Podcast. Thank you for listening at home. Laurie and Adam, thank you for being with us as well. Remember, if you want to read Laurie's article about the Chief Executive of Manchester United, Richard Arnold, and indeed any of our writing, you can subscribe to The Athletic now for just one ninety nine a month for the first 12 months by going to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. We'll see you on the next one. The Athletic. <laughs>